Hi there, everyone. Hi. Good evening. I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, thank you so much for coming. My name is Diana Thompson. I'm the uh, curator of 19th and early 20th century art here at the National Academy. And on behalf of Carmen Brannigan, our director, as well as the entire staff and board, I'd like to welcome you to tonight's review panel. This event occurs once a month here at the National Academy from fall through spring and is organized in partnership with David Cohen and artcritical.com. And I'm thrilled to announce that tonight's review panel marks the 10-year anniversary to the month of the start of our partnership with David, who has kept this wonderful program, wonderful and unique program, I should say, thriving for so many years. Thank you. I would also like to mention that the review panel is generously supported by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and the New York State Council on the Arts. Tonight's panelists will discuss several exhibitions currently on view in galleries and museums around New York. I also encourage you all to see the exhibitions currently on view here at the National Academy in the museum galleries until January 11th is Beyond the Classical, Imagining the Ideal Across Time, an exhibition that explores the way artists have referenced classical themes such as history, mythology, allegory, and beauty over the course of 200 years. Featured in the exhibition are works from the Academy's 19th and 20th century collections, alongside works on loan by major modern and contemporary artists. Also on view in a dedicated project space on the museum's fourth floor are works by designer Wendell Castle and the architect and national academician William Pedersen. Right outside this room in the Academy's school galleries, you can see reflections on the classical, which features works by students and faculty. On your seats, you'll find information about our upcoming program and how to become a member of the National Academy, which I hope you will consider if you like what you hear tonight. And just outside this door, there is a table set up where you can find additional materials on things like school course offerings. But now for the review panel, please join me in welcoming tonight's guests, as well as moderator David Cohen, publisher and editor of artcritical.com. Thank you very much indeed, Diana, and thank you to all the staff here at the National Academy for having, and the staff, and also especially, of course, the academicians for having had uh, the vision and the generosity uh, to bring me here in the first place, and then the professionalism to, uh, to, to, to sustain and make this program happen. So, and, and thank you actually as much to the, well, let's not worry about percentages, but I would also like to say a big thank you to the audience, to a very loyal audience, to people, many, many faces in this room have, well, a few, have been here for 10 years. And they look just as fresh as they did that, uh, that day 10 years ago when Ken Johnson, along with two others, Maureen Mullarkey and Jerry Saltz, battled it out and were heckled for not doing their job properly, but did their job very well, in my opinion. Tonight's panel is unusually made up of three individuals who've all served in the past on the review panel. So we're celebrating by, by, by thanking many of our, three of our many loyal panelists. So enough schmoozing and, well, maybe a little more schmoozing. I would like to also thank Isaac Durfell, who records uh, tonight's panel expertly uh, for later podcast at artcritical.com, where you can go and hear 10 years' worth of review panels. 
and also to my associate at artcritical.com, Anna Shukilo, who prepared this evening's rather exquisite videos of the shows that we're reviewing. Who is here at the review panel for the first time? Wonderful, some new hands. Well, for your benefit, and also to remind our regulars of who we are and what we do, we're three, we're four critics who've been to see four exhibitions around town. We show a little video of the first two shows. We, the panel, discuss them among ourselves for a bit. Uh, a mic is then passed around the audience to anybody who wants to express an opinion, or if they really have to, to ask a question. Opinions are preferable. This is the review panel, after all. And then we repeat the exercise with our last two exhibitions. And just by some bizarre coincidence, the invisible hand of the market or something else, we seem to have chosen this month, as Ken was pointing out, as we were waiting outside. How is it, he said, we've ended up with two British pastoralists and two American activists. Well, we just have. That's the way it is. But it's not our intention to have a panel about politics and then a panel about pastoralism, but inevitably comparisons and uh, cross-references can and, and do and will happen. But we are interested in thorough reviews of each of our four <laughs> exhibitions. Um, now it's my great pleasure to introduce our guests for this evening in alphabetical order by last name. They are Ken Johnson, who's art critic for the New York Times, a position he's held for quite some while with a brief um, uh, segue to the Boston Globe. He is also author of Are You Experienced? How Psychedelic Consciousness um, transformed modern art. And um, Joan Waltermatt, to um, my right, if you're facing me, is um, an artist and a critic. She is director of the Hofberger um, School at the Maryland Institute uh, College of Art, MICA. Um, and she is also an editor at large at the Brooklyn Rail and a contributing editor at artcritical.com. Um, her work was last seen um, in New York uh, this early this spring, uh, or last winter, I should say, really, at Hyonis Gallery in a group show, and she will have a solo show there this coming February. And Marjorie Wellish um, is also uh, both an artist and a critic. Um, a day symposium, uh, a symposium was held looking at uh, her contributions uh, in, in both those fields at uh, the University of Pennsylvania um, and published as Of the Diagram, the work of Marjorie Wellish. Um, a collection of her art criticism was published by Cambridge University Press as Signifying Art, Essays on Art After 1960. And she writes regularly, has written for Art Monthly, Bomb Magazine, and many other publications. Uh, I should also mention that she has served as an artist in residence um, in 2010 at the Art Institute of Chicago. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your...
panel. Great. Well, let's now see video number one, and it's our uh, American activists half, as it were. Right. I think that's our cue to to talk. Let's just leave that there. It's fine. And um, rebels are reasonable is one of the enigmatic uh, placard slogans of Peter Fend. I wonder, Ken if transforming her mode from projecting uh, redacted, uh, declassified documents on civic buildings and moving into oil on canvas, is this a sign of Jenny Holzer, the rebel, becoming reasonable? So we're talking about Jenny Jen Jenny's work yes. for this segment. Well, I quoted not, Peter Fenn because the slogan seemed interesting, and I'm trying to apply it now to uh, Jenny Holzer. Do you think it's, it's the rebel becoming reasonable by painting rather than projecting onto buildings? Well, I don't know if painting is ever a reasonable thing. Um, I don't know. I, I guess looking at the show, I felt like uh, it put me in this contradictory state without resolution where you have this kind of um, nicely made uh, oil on canvas work and then you have this verbal content that's kind of horrifying and if you take it seriously it makes you think I shouldn't even be here in a gallery looking at these things I should be out doing something uh, more productive uh, more humanistically productive so I, that I don't really know how to resolve that. And I, I'm not sure if that's what she intends. Do you have a clearer idea? Well, Marjorie, would you have a clearer idea of what she intends? And do you find this, that, that, that is, is she, is her intention in a way to explore that kind of tension between uh, activism and contemplation that Ken is identifying? Um, yes, I could make sense of her intentions, which are quite um, obvious. Uh, the LED for, uh, technologies for which um, she is best known are so fortuitous in um, their delivery system of agitprop that by comparison, canvases, which after all are embedded in histories of painting, are confusing. That's one answer. Another answer is her intention would seem to be whether, um, to import what people called content, but I think that's a term that has to be interrogated, um, into painting to um, uh, rally 
people who would be looking at painting to certain kinds of social activism or at least social consciousness. Advantageous to her in this show is that instead of scanning the messages, which we who know her work would do if she were silk screening, we have to decode the messages word by word, if not letter by letter. So she slows us down. The disadvantage um, to her is that by doing um, formalist painting, uh, we see the deficit between her own work and some of the masters. Um, the surfaces are delicate, even finicky, and um, do not hold up in comparison with color field painting to which she is referring. Right. So Joan, um, once upon a time, the young Holzer would go out and um, with, with, with um, uh, wheat paste, put truisms in various colors around places. Now, um, now that she has the masses completely behind her, it's time to, to, to catch, catch that last echelon of the bourgeoisie uh, and show us paintings instead. Do you go? Do you buy that theory? Not really, no. Ah, okay. But I do remember those days when she was pasting the posters all over the telephone poles and light poles in Lower Manhattan. But I would have a maybe a little bit different means of approaching what she's doing here. Um, as a critic, you know, I'm looking at this work and I'm I'm thinking about how I'm gonna how I'm gonna devise a set of terms that I could use to level a critique against it. And I found, of all the shows that I looked at, Holzer was actually the most compelling in this regard. Um, the first point I came to is that usually, I mean, when looking at paintings you're either going for the experience that the work generates or you're going for the kind of discourse that the work generates. I mean, this is just one possible dialectic. And in Holzer's work, I found myself really amazed at her ability to generate a discourse about a political subject in a way that was non-sensational and that, um, allowed me, as I looked at those paintings, to reflect on my own culpability and responsibility as a US taxpayer in relationship to the kind of information that I was getting through the text on the paintings. And I know a lot of people have said that they are, these paintings are really beautiful and um, critique them in a way on, on that level, but I'd be inclined to agree with Marjorie that that she really reveals her lack of mastery in painting when she goes for this. But what's really interesting to me is how well that works to her advantage. Um, because in looking at those paintings initially, the formal aspects of them are impenetrable. The brush strokes are hesitant, finicky, anxiety-ridden. They're, they're not embedded with an intention in the way, say, just for a quick example, the Joan Mitchell paintings that were on view in that same gallery recently are embedded with an incredible intention that a, a viewer could read. And I don't find Holzer's um, lines to be embedded with this kind of intention. 
And because they're so flat, they throw you, they push you out and they throw you back on yourself. And to me, this was a really incredible um, device and um, in a way kind of formal invention that she uh, created to allow the person who's looking at her paintings to really think about their own position in relationship to her subject. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of flummoxed by them as paintings. I, they, they do not work as paintings, and they're a bizarre, for me, means of conveying the information that she finds compelling. And um, But it seems to me that also a, a letdown, because the projections were um, so on the money. They were so classy and clever and and really opened many people's eyes, including my own, to the the abundance of literature that ex uh, literature documentation um, of uh, uh, the subject that she's she's concerned with, um, and that we should all be concerned with. So it seems almost a caricature of herself to me to move from uh, a brilliant strategy for dealing with that one body of evidence to then fetishizing and commodifying them into really awful paintings. Why not um, stick with the agenda, but find some other source of information and some other mode of conveyance? It's, it's almost, I'd almost compare them with Damien Hirst's paintings as a catastrophe, really, um, as painting and also as being what this what what she can do well, Ken is that harsh? Oh, I yeah, I guess. Um, I th there's one part. Uh, John used the word impenetrable. I, I, the the paintings she's done that interest me uh, quite a bit are the the ones where she's covered up the text with blocks of uh, the text of these redacted documents with blocks of color, so they look like Russian constructivist paintings or or something, and. And it made me think about that the operative term for those is, is transparency. And, and in a way, her whole project, which has to do with uh, downloading information that's been obfuscated, uh, is about transparency. And, and there's something about how those paintings link up sort of the, the, the idea of flatness and opacity in modernist painting which at the same time is supposed to, in its more mystical dimensions, be a window into some theosophical uh, place. Um, <clears throat> so I thought if she's going to paint that that was something to pursue further, like how far does the transparency go? I mean, the, the world can be transparentized all the way down. Uh, in theory, although only God would be able to see that far. But, you know, like, but it stops. It stops with just these documents. And, and I wonder, like, with the, the transparency, I mean, the, the politics of it are unexceptionable. And, you know, they're just like, this is awful material. But why, what happens? How, how is it that people come to be so cruel <clears throat> to, to certain others? And what's the political mindset of, of, 
the pursuit of the war on, on te terror. And what's, what is it that, well, how do we get to this point where like the highest values in American politics is to keep us safe, you know? And there, there's like so much that could be uh, deepened in terms of what, what they're about and complicated that, uh, you know, I, I'm left feeling um, less, less than uh, excited. It would seem, Marjorie, that, uh, I mean, Joan mentioned uh, Joan Mitchell, but um, the, the, the painter that they seem to me to reference in a way is Jasper Johns, because um, she's, um, but in so doing, because of the uh, monotony and sort of dullness, but also kind of strange, misplaced painterliness, um, and just also the um, disaffect between content in terms of uh, pictorial subject and, and, and strategy. But um, is she therefore, is she trying to, is she, is she in, in the process of, she started by showing how remarkable this cache of documents is in the projections on public buildings. Is she now working the other way around to show how, how banal, is it the, the, banal, the, the, the banality of evil that she's showing in the kind of m mundane documentation? Well, I think you're, you're, discount, you're, di you're not recognizing a, a certain strategy that's uh, the, the idea that of making paintings that uh, people empower by, and then, you know, it's not one that I necessarily think is. What is the strategy, can you say? Well, Tom, Thomas Lawson wrote in Last Exit Painting that the idea that, that a painting which seems like a, a harmless um, uh, thing, you could, you could sell it to people in power and it would, it would sort of uh, uh, be, exist, it would be radioactive in their environment and have some kind of effect on it. Subversively, uh, you know, you're like smuggling this subversive uh, sort of thought into their homes because they, right. they didn't know it was there because, you know, and, All right. and it is. And, and the way those one percenters who own Barbara Blooms are suddenly sort of arrested in their tracks and reform their character. Yeah, yeah. And, and I okay. mean, someone like Adrian Piper has said the same thing. You know, why do I show in Barbara blue, Kruger, chip, blue chip galleries? Even Rothko, I think, is, was one quoted as saying his murals for, for a Harvard dry, d d dining room that he um, hoped it would Seagram, make. Seagram building. That he hoped it would make the people there vomit. Mm. I mean, it's an old kind of modernist. I don't know if that's what Jenny Holzer is thinking, but, but there is that sort of notion of, of a radical, radical use for a painting. Do you buy that, Marjorie? Um, I am very impressed with Ken Johnson's narrative. Um, and he has just upped the IQ of those paintings considerably, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and uh, I have several thousand words to say here, but I'll say just a few. Uh, one, in response to Ken, I think that the, and I was sincere in what I said, um, that considering a, a, a line of pursuit that she might consider as transparency and opacity on something other than, and now I'm answering David, on something other than an allegorical level. One thing I found very obvious in her show was 
the grayness, the, the dust, the this, the that, the, the, uh, the, the overload in pathos that the paint was supposed to put us in, in mind of, and the, the sensitive treatment. All of it was highly scripted to uh, enlist our sympathy. Um, that's what I read in the intentionality of the painting and the paint handling. It was a kind of compensatory move for the harshness and the histrionics and the melodrama with which she had voiced other disaffected voices in the past. Yeah, she's surely preaching to the choir, isn't she, Joan? I mean, is, is she going to raise the consciousness of, of, of anybody new uh, with, with these paintings, do you think? It's hard to tell. I wouldn't be the one who would make that kind of judgment, but I'm going to take a moment to say mm -hmm. that um, I didn't mean to imply, Ken, that I found her paintings impenetrable, but rather that the surfaces are, are, are not, um, they don't create a depth that you can enter into like a painting. That's what I meant. The surfaces are impenetrable. And, but I think that's their real asset that it's how they allow you to have those thoughts that you voiced about, you know, how do we get to this point where one human being can do something like this to another human being? How do we as taxpayers uh, look at these paintings and understand our own responsibility towards what's happened? I mean, we've paid for this. So I find that really interesting. I, I feel like that's her most... Uh, her strongest point is her ability to get us to think about what happened and not those paintings themselves. And I'm, I'm gonna disagree with you about the color. I feel like when she, she moves into any kind of formal territory, whether it's like devising these patterns that emerge out of filling in the white space on the documents or her sort of spring past, pastel colors in those pseudo-constructivist pieces in the back, I feel like there she confuses the issue and she starts to make formal moves in what to me looks like uh, something that has been laid out as using abstract painting, not making abstract painting. In, indeed, um, the, the, the pretext is a conceptual move. In other words, the, the paintings in the back room which are they're not constructive as they're suprematist, but never mind, um, uh, are um, downloaded from the spaces that were redacted. However, what those paintings show is how important formalism is, how important visual intelligence is, because these works do not have them. They are indeed applied. That's the problem. That's right. That's, oh, I, that's what I John don't. is saying, in a way. In, in, to me, the issues of aesthetics are completely irrelevant. I mean, I, that's well, why I find it so. Um, it, a kind of. A, that's why I would. I would critique her when she goes into those issues by choosing those colors. Or, I mean, the paintings. I mean, you look in those paintings in the back, and the surfaces are immaculate. And, I mean, they do. They have aesthetic issues in them, and I feel like that confuses it because that's not what it's about. Or well, I think one I of the best it. things you can say about Jenny Halzer is she's an irritant. It's like... Um, she certainly, she's a master on that level, yes. So, yeah, she's preaching to the choir, but even to the choir, she's irritating. 
You well, know, because, in, choir, because choirs find it irritating to be preached to at. That's why, um, in, a, in a way. Yeah, I mean, you agree with her, and you feel put on the spot, and you think, you know, it's like we're kind of inundated with terrible stuff going on. All the t It's bad news every day, and what are we doing about it? And I don't know, there's something also, I guess, very idealistic about her project. Like, there's a belief in art that is, I mean, I, wonder, I, I think to myself, does she really believe that much, that art is a place that, that she can really make something uh, really deeply transformative happen, as deeply transformative as altering how we conduct war? But it can't possibly have, I mean, if, even if, okay, if she was an idealist and we were an idealist, why would this be the strategy to have us motivated to demand change, to make pretty but not actually pretty paintings? As opposed to what? Well, as opposed to putting up a barricade. I mean, I, I, I misspoke earlier when I said Barbara Bloom. I was trying to say Barbara Kruger. Now, I'm saying that Barbara, even Barbara Kruger doesn't um, actually work when her paintings are bought by a one percenter. They don't, like, turn him or her into uh, a great activist or anything. But I think someone like Barbara Kruger is streets ahead, no pun intended, when she puts stuff on a bus that drives through LA with, with uh, uh, those really using uh, constructivist, not suprematist um, typography, um, uh, El Lizitsky, et cetera, to, to, to make those buses into the really dynamic objects that then get across ideas about, um, about uh, reproductive control rights. And um, that's, that's art activism that's actually formally very successful. So I'd say that Kruger provides the yardstick with which to give Holzer a damn good beating because she's both formally and ideologically working, right? I think Kent's question about whether or not those paintings aspire to um, actually affecting political change is really important and I think it's really the crux of the matter when you look at Holzer's paintings because if you attribute that to them, then you can only determine that they fail because they're just paintings on canvas and they're not gonna affect political change. But what interests me about them is how they allow the space for singular acts of resistance in, in terms of the single person that comes to look at them and I think that as an that's a more realistic um, aspiration for them as works of art. And just to bring this back to something David said earlier about, well, why did she move from what seems to be much more radical um, media-oriented uh, LED signs to painting? And I think, for me, that lies exactly in this question, is that by moving into paintings rather than media, she creates a space for reflection and thought about her subject, which I don't believe that the moving LED signs really allow for. And to me, that's a very interesting move, and it's a very interesting move in an artist at this point in time who's had such incredible success in working with media. Yeah, the, the, the body of work that I was referring to actually specifically were the projections, not the LED displays, but the projections into, uh, you know, when you have 
the, those same documents that she uses as her sources are projected onto buildings at night. That, that's, that's kind of what I meant. But um, Well, <clears throat> I mean, there's two sets of criteria. One you're setting up, but one set of criteria is like how effective can they be as agitprop. And Barbara Kruger is a good, a good uh, she's like the gold standard, I guess. And then the other one is, is how do they draw us into, you know, maybe they're initially irritating, and, but do they draw us into a contemplation? And, when, and to what end is that contemplation? You know, and, and to some extent, it, it reflects back on us, like, what, you know, I, I, th I think it comes down to a state of consciousness, and, and, I, and I think what, what somehow I want to want to know is, like, she's putting this at us, how does she resolve it? Like, what's, what, how does she what, see what she's doing? How, do, how does she live with herself, very successful artist with horses and, and uh, you know, nice, a nice life? And, and, uh, and very preoccupied with, with this awful stuff that's going on. Uh, uh, you really want to, do we really want to go there? That seems, I mean, no disrespect to the art critic of the New York Times, but it seems a bit banal, a bit personal. I mean, but we've what, all, if we've it's live not personal, what is it? I mean, I think you, you can you draw it back to a generational perspective. And when you think about Holzer and also us as being part of the Vietnam generation, I think the point you make, Ken, is really important that she throws it back on us. And we all know what went on during the Vietnam era in terms of the people's responsibility in response to the actions of their government. And to me, that's it's interesting to bring it back to that. I mean, if one wants to go on a personal level, I find that maybe a much more interesting question to look at where she stands in relationship to her generation than to her um, bank account. Yeah. Her bank account, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Marjorie, just to, f uh, we, 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 we should move on soon, but uh, I, it's something that occurs to me with, um, something that's intriguing to me about uh, Holzer's painting, these paintings, um, I mean, I compared them in, uh, to Damien Hirst in, in the sense of sort of embarrassment to my mind that they're not working. But um, actually, conceptually, um, I'm, I'm also put in mind of, of, of conceptual abstraction and, and situations where people do make um, successful abstract paintings from uh, materials that have um, a, a conceptual um, uh, starting point and possibly ending point. Say, for instance, if one were to compare Jenny Holtz, this, this body of work by Jenny Holzer, to the work of David Diao, um, uh, would that be an instructive comparison just to show really how very different abstract painting can be when it has documentation of significance as its, uh, as its motif? Um, <clears throat> that's a very interesting question and an apt um, interlocutor, but I'm going to change the terms just slightly. If, uh, um, if, and then we can, because it bears also on Peter Fenn's work. Um, uh, if we change the terms to signage, we get a different printout. Uh, art and language was very good 
the, the uh, col um, collaborative conceptual group Art and Language, just to name um, some, some very deservedly celebrated uh, attempts at introducing text and uh, social critique into painting. Um, we get, a, as I say, a, a different, from my point of view, uh, a different way of looking at those works on canvas, which, when compared with signage, mm -hmm. uh, um, either are failures because they are not transparent in their message, but, in a, but as Ken said, they're kind of a Trojan horse of good taste that then reveals uh, something of that which we had not wanted to pay attention to. Um, but um, when it comes to signage, there are, e even within the conceptual art groups or conceptualism, confusions about whether the message is to be clear and unambiguous, explicit, or eloquent and memorable and poetic. And I see this in a number of conceptual artists' works, including uh, Lawrence Wiener, who, I'm on whose work I've written quite a few times, and whose command of textuality is actually more hit and miss than I believe has been acknowledged. And underlying that is not gossip, but actually a genuine confusion about how the message is to be read or delivered and read. On what level is the rhetoric? So I would, I'm not going to answer the question. I'm going to raise these as yeah. questions. Cool. I yeah, think I, it, can, can, yeah. can I? OK. Uh, I, you know, I, I really dissent from the discussion of design and, and the relevance of that. Uh, I don't know if, sure, they could be designed and painted better, but that seems beside the point to me. I, th I, I want to, back to my thing about transparency. There, in, in these redacted things, there are three players. There's the victims of torture, there's the torturers, and there's the people who are doing the redacting. This vast, sort of uh, soulless, uh, huge institution of people in cubicles, I guess, sort of scanning these documents and, and deciding what, what is allowed, the public is allowed to know. That, like, I, you know, David Foster Wallace's last novel is about people working in a, a tax, income tax, uh, an IRS facility processing income tax returns. And he thought, you know, that boredom was maybe one of the most interesting themes to deal with, and, and somehow I think that is, is a really important aspect of, because, and, and it's something that actually has, we all have to do with, that we are all in some sense, maybe not all of us, maybe there are some, some rebels who don't fit into their proper holes, but, but we're all sort of drones in this system, and, and how, how sort of, you know, how, not so much implicated, but sort of woven into this fabric of institutional anonymity. Anyway, that seems to me a topic I would like to ask Jenny Halzer to investigate more deeply. 
Okay, cool. I think we would we should now move to Peter Fend, who's who, the discussion of which um, Marjorie has already uh, initiated and instigated in some way. Um, Joan, you have some, I think, history with uh, with with Peter Fend. Could you fill us in on what you where you where you think this latest body of work fits with his career? Who is he? What is he about? Well, actually, I thought it was really interesting that we ended up discussing uh, Jenny Holzer and Peter Fenn together because, as many of you may know, there was a, a collaborative group back in the, excuse me for my date uh, inability, but maybe the late 70s or early 80s, called The Offices with um, Jenny Holzer, Peter Fenn, and um, I believe it was Peter Naden who was also in this group. Am I right? Um, and following that, that group, uh, I met Peter Fend about this time and formed another group with him called Space Force. And we started working with um, satellite imagery and did a show at the kitchen in 1982. So I just want to mention that I, I do have some involvement in the project. Um, but when I went to see his show, I found it really um, like I walked in and I thought, wow, this is like the cleanest show I've ever seen Peter do. Like, where's all the chaos? You know, all these very clean images. And, um, you know, I can remember many exhibitions where there were just piles and piles of papers and newspaper clippings and um, like really utter chaos everywhere. Um, so, I don't know, maybe that's a good point of starting into it. Where I work, if you're if you have a personal relationship to the artist, you're supposed to recuse yourself. Okay, so no, no, let me. No, but I don't. No, no. Sorry. Luckily, we're not where you work. We're um, at a place where you share and make it clear and declare your interest, if there is one. But uh, uh, you know that was, as you say, decades ago, and now you're wearing another hat and doing the job of criticism, which is, I think, quite doable. Um, but, but thanks, yeah, if Joan makes it to the New York Times, she'll be told that, I'm sure, along, on, on, en route. I'm um, not holding my breath, David. I, you've got better things to do, Joan. Um, but Ken, what, what do you make of, uh, how, how does uh, Fenn's um, success compare to uh, Holzer's in terms of um, um, political consciousness and uh, the, the clarity and power of what he does? His success? Just say, tell us what you think of Peter Fend. Come on. <laughs> okay. Uh, how does it come? Can you rephrase the question? Tell us what you think of Peter <laughs> Fend. <laughs> I, I, uh, I um, in preparation for this, I, I watched uh, Peter, uh, a video of him talking and, and found him uh, a very, uh, engaging as, as a spokesman for his project. And I thought that's, you know, the combination is what you really need with, with, with somebody like this. And but he said something in it that, that kind of blew my mind. He said, I don't, I assume this is true. He said 40 to 50% of the uranium, the world's uranium is in Tibet. And, uh, and therefore, he said that's why somebody, I, he named somebody who I th imagine is, is Chinese, is so interested in the Dalai Lama and 
or in having a relationship with the Dalai Lama. And I, I thought, wow, that really, you know, and unlike Jenny Halser's work where there wasn't any specific factual information in it that, that surprised me or, or made me sort of kind of reorient some of the ways I think about what little I know about the world, um, that did. Um, but I think it's the kind of thing where, having watched Peter talk about his project, I, I, I really needed that to animate the show. Without that, I, I, I mean, it asks an awful lot of me to, to go into it and, and um, I mean, he has huge amounts of information and knowledge about, the, about water in the world. And he makes this, uh, he uses this n notion of Duchamp's urinal, which has been called by experts the most important artwork of the 20th century as a metaphor about uh, drainage and the importance of that as a, you know, in relation to the crisis of I, I, pollution and, and, and the environment. In the environment. I don't know where I'm going with this, but... Um, but it's fascinating connection between yeah the Duchamp's urinal and um, and and issues of pollution. But um... I mean, I, I guess that this is, he's open to the question, you know, why bother with art, which has such a small arena, and why not be a politician and and use your charisma to go out and and speak to a broader audience. Has he um, said that? Did, no, no, that's my question. Oh, that's your question. Well, uh, let uh, me turn that around and say that I, I feel like what's more at the at the heart of it is the opposite, and it's like why not have artists making policy decisions and having more influence because of their incredible ability to synthesize information? Um, artists should be more involved in government and political decisions. Oh no. Well, no. <laughs> is that um, what you think about artists? I, I'm just representing the point of view that I think is embedded in this work, not my personal point so of view. So when the big corporations ask artists to come in and like Bell Telephone and did in the 60s and to teach them to be more creative and flexible and stuff, that's a good use for, that's a good thing for artists to. Just let me rephrase. Um, in, in working with the satellite information, it was clear that artists who are very, very visually oriented um, had a much greater capacity to understand information displayed that way than a lot of scientists because of their training. And so um, a lot of the Ocean Earth um, Corporation that was formed by FEND and various members of Space Force and other people that um, bought stock in the original company was that, that this visual capability of artists could be actually channeled in a productive, constructive way that would um, maybe lead us in a direction of, of away from war. And one of the, the early ideas in, in the Space Force group was that if a network could be created where everybody could view the entire Earth at all times, kind of transparency like you were speaking of earlier, that this would put, be put an end to all wars because we could all see what everybody was doing all the time if we had this kind of live satellite transmission of like uh, the equivalent of what Google uh, Earth does now. 
I don't know. Yeah, I, this, is, I, this is a very uh, is fascinating top topic for a com- uh, panel on a different evening. Let's let's um, let's look at Fend. I mean, is he is he is he doing anything like that? Do you think? But this is about Fend. This is this is one of the ideas that was you know born with this uh, Space Force, the offices, Ocean Earth, whatever different collaborative groups. Um, Fend was involved with um, like in the early '80s through the '80s, and um, I think that. But Joan, the, the the work that that I'm familiar with isn't very visual. No, and I think that's what that's one of the critiques. I mean, when you go in and you look at those flag pieces, um, like just because of how you know my whatever twenty year involvement with this work and the, how much I know about it, I can read it in a different way. And looking, and I I feel like when I looked at those flag pieces, what would have been really interesting is to display beside them, for example, some of Fenn's really incredible drawings that he can just do off the top of his head of geographical situations where he's able to outline the water basins of different map areas, and that would give you a sense of, like, why are these flags laid out like this? Because you come in and you look at them and like, okay, here are these weird colors, and you sort of realize that they look like the flags, but in, to my mind, without the kind of information I have, they're not really readable. So it's like you come in and you don't really get it, what's going on, unless somebody's sitting there telling you. I, I don't want to be the, uh, the, the formalist referee coming in on a drone here, but um, we have been to see a show. Uh, hello? Yeah, a show. It's, it's, a, it's compared to mapping the entire universe, it's very boring just to be at Essex Gallery on the Lower East Side. But nonetheless, we minor people have done that. Okay, and we're looking at a body of work um, that uh, obviously has a career behind it, obviously has a sensibility behind it, obviously have a set of preoccupations behind it. And I do thank you for giving us the backstory. But uh, Marjorie, let's, let's walk into Essex Gallery, uh, Essex Street, which is not on Essex Street, but that's maybe part of the message, and maybe a misregistration of this global map and, uh, and the, the nomenclature of this gallery. But anyway, here we are on Essex Street, which is on, what is it, what it is? Eldridge. Eldridge. Obviously. Obviously. Where else would you put an Essex Street gallery? Tell us, please, what did you make of the flags, for instance? What did you make of the, or the message of this show? As charming as that segue is, I'm going to disappoint you. I was perfectly satisfied with the show. In fact, of the four, it was by far the most compelling on a number of levels, including, as I had indicated before, um, frames of reference are necessary, ladies and gentlemen. I truly believe that um, if most shows, I'm about to rant, as you can see, most shows, as they are hung, presuppose not only self-evidence, but remedial self-evidence. And it has been really irritating to go into most shows because they are so insulting. Uh, going into Peter Fenn's, I, yes, I had some work to do, but I also had frames of reference and contexts including signage and diagrams, of which uh, I'm sure a few of you have encountered signage and diagrams in your life at least once, and know, alternatively, histories of graphic design 
and their activist roles throughout the century, not only in conceptual art from the 70s, but let's say the Werkbund from 1905, in which artists, architects, graphic designers, and yes, industrialists, were hoping to cooperate with each other for the betterment of society. Now, I saw Peter Fenn's work with respect to some of those frames. And I was perfectly satisfied, even though I did not have all I needed to know about the immediate history. Moreover, another framework was, as I spoke to one of the dealers there, um, a more immediate frame of uh, the situation as the Gutai, that's for 1940s and 50s, uh, the, uh, for whom um, the um, uh, signage, yes. well, the Gutai would be Japanese, the situations would be French, for whom activism and signage or the equivalent of a kind of ideogrammic presentation of self is perfectly embedded in our avant-garde history. I have some, um, give me one more minute, because okay. what I was also able to bring to the show, which I would like to share with you, is a model that may be well within your repertory. There's constructivism, which has argued in the 1918, in the 20s, that art is not superfluous to society, it is something that can, in fact, inform society according to certain ideological values, including design, which is not lifestyle. Um, and for those people, like Naum Gabo, an engineer, um, uh, art was very significant. In your own immediate experience, Ed Reinhardt would be a constructivist insofar as when he was doing cartoons for the masses, he was an activist. When he was doing paintings, he was a painter. He was not confused about what he was doing. I see Peter Fenn more as a productivist, which he may not agree with, but I would, was able to bring that framework a productivist. The, Does that make him more like uh, Reinhardt's cartoons or more no, like no, no, Reinhardt's no, paintings? It makes him more like Tatlin or it makes him more okay. like uh, the Rachenko Stepanova oh, collab, right. ah. for <laughs> whom um, the uh, uh, point is the construction of society and that uh, graphic arts of all kinds, some more visual, some more verbal, are to lend themselves to that. After all, the Soviet poster we have no trouble considering the Soviet poster both as agitprop and as art. So I was actually well stocked with frameworks Fantastic. by which. Fantastic. Yeah. May I just propose? May I just propose that the greatest moment in the history of the collaboration between technocrats and artists, bringing the full force of their artistic vision to bear, is none of the idealistic moments mentioned so far, but actually that occasion where the war ministry got Wyndham Lewis and Edward Wadsworth and some other British vorticists to invent camouflage, uh, really, in relation to battleships. So I'm sorry to dispel the notion of uh, pacifism being somehow at the core of this uh, bringing in artists around the world, because actually the moment where they probably 
had the had the most direct and positive, in their own terms, impact, it was uh, to camouflage battleships. And I wonder how camouflaged or transparent the works and the intentions of Peter Fend are. What what what? Um, walk us through the show on in Essex Street, Ken, and tell us. And don't say I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to say something else. Blah blah blah. Just answer this question. What what what? What is it? What's what's going on there? Does 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 it work? Well, on one side of the room are are uh, the series of small. Are they paintings? I, they're painting. Um, How are they made? They're, I think they're printed they, enamel on um, metal surfaces. Inkjet. Inkjet. Yeah. Okay. There we go. So they resemble flags, and they're supposed to. And, and I read there in, in the press release. There's a paragraph describing each one. Each one is is has to do with a different country or region, and it has to, and the different colors are supposed to identify different. Uh, um, elevations or uh, uh, flow of waters, water tables, and and they're supposed to, in a way that I found it. I I don't think I completely succeeded in understanding their proposals or uh, statements about what is and what could be and what ought to be preserved and what ought to be watched out for. And I, I guess the one, that's, one that struck me was there are four rivers converging on Baghdad, which is where the Garden of Eden was, I think. Uh, but So anyway, there are those. There are those. Uh, then there's a video with a text that says, the ocean is coming in. What does it say? The ocean is coming to us, or the sea is coming to us. And it just shows the, a fairly calm view from the beach of waves coming in. I like that. Uh, Great. Thanks, Ken. So the syntax of the show, then, is, is flags, flags, the video, and the placards with enigmatic, poetically, kind of almost uh, sort of Holzer-like truisms. Uh, yeah. Right. So, what does it all add up to? What is the syntax? What does this sentence spell? What does it? What, what? Never mind the press release. Never mind what he's done for the last twenty years. And never mind the history of signs going back a hundred years. What does? What does Fend? What does this sentence say? Anyone on the panel? I don't think you can strip the work down from everything that it alludes to re and refers to and take it at face value like that. And I, I do think that's a lot of what Finn's work is about, is the very complex network of relationships and references that are going on in it. OK, but we've had quite a lot of the notions. Between the three of you, you've given us some incredibly rich uh, history. Now. We've got the, the syntax of this show and your rich history, and we feed them together. So we, we appreciate that we, we can't just get it in a formalist way by looking at the pictures and liking them or not liking them. We're not looking at that kind of art. Okay, I got that. But tell me, when I look at a Mark Lombardi, there's a guy who was quite nuts with all that information he was gathering. But he gathered them into the most scintillatingly exquisite drawings that made me think about corporate flows of influence and stuff. I, sometimes I thought, the guy's off his rocker. And sometimes I thought, whoa, this is kind of interesting, right? OK, with Fend, 
I'm just looking at some pretty silly, stupid maps. Give me some guidance. Tell me what to think and feel. Okay, I'm telling you what to think and feel. Anyway, uh, actually, I told you what to think and feel. Now I'll respond. Um, among David's many gifts is that he uh, will become a lightning rod um, for the sake of everyone else. So I'm going to respond by saying thank you for that. Um, yes, I did find the show disjointed as a show. Um, and I, and um, it, it, the show wasn't as rhetorically persuasive as it, ought, as it ought to be on its own terms for that reason. In other words, if I worked back from, this is a rhetoric that is meant to change my attitudes. Um, it is meant to persuade me at any rate to um, some sort of environmental um, activism. It, or at the very least, it is meant to uh, inform me. I did not get that, except through my own um, uh, ability to contextualize and also other shows I've seen, wherein diagrams and signage are meant to be read as much as seen. That's why I distinguish between paintings and signage because when you use that key term signage, you approach the visual object differently. Okay. Mar can I ask Marjorie a question? Yes. When, when you read, I mean, you talked about the, the, them visually, but when you read them, I mean, is that relevant? Because um, I. Well, well and let me answer you. I could read some of the visual maps. I mean the placards, and, uh, the verbal uh, uh, reading. Uh, the, the placards uh, were mixed in their discursive position. Some, I felt, were aiming for the memorial. Others, I thought, were perhaps inadvertently awkward, owing to their will toward objectivism and documentary uh, positioning. And so I would cross-examine Fend on um, the discursive registers behind some of the signage. Right. Thank you. And now is the moment where I'm going to bring in our audience to comment on both the shows we've seen so far, Jenny Holzer, uh, Peter Fend. As in the comments come, we're not going to separate the two. So. The discussion we've had so far, we do not have time for questions, so just make your comments. Thank you very much. Well, uh, I'm just going to say three things, basically. One is that um, I'm shocked, besides how much I admire David. I think that um, probably for some ego reasons or to make a spectacular, you know, the, the debate, uh, I think it's kind of unkind with the, you know, the artists when you mention something that is so serious as Peter Fenn's, uh, you know, involvement with the ecological issues, with international political issues, like very few artists, you know, have the depth and the, uh, uh, the knowledge that uh, Peter Fenn has on, on these issues. To minimize those things, just minimize David, but not uh, Peter Fenn. Now, in relation to the two artists, I think it's a great parallel because um, while uh, Jenny has, they are very similar. Jenny has some paintings and has some, I mean, visual text and 
uh, verbal text, I mean, some written text. The same thing is with uh, Pitofen. In the middle of that, in Pitofen, there is this video. Now, in the uh, in Genis, the agronomic only emphasis in the uh, verbal text, in the written text, is something that I would think what she's doing there, you can just make a photocopy of the text and give it to the people and use media. And you don't need to make you know, a beautified painting. Uh, this is not camouflage or anything. It's not going to do any subversion anywhere. And when I see, I compare that with this uh, verbal text here in, in, in Pitafen, I see that there's a lot of philosophy behind it. There's a lot of knowledge, a lot of depth, a lot of wisdom in what he's saying in political uh, levels, in economical levels, in, 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 in artistic levels, and in aesthetic levels as well. And not just that they are you know, hanging on a wall, but also they are present among the public. They are right there in the street. They are part of, of you know, the relation the, of the artist with society. Now, probably Peter Fenn is one of those few artists who is so aware of our time. Most artists are like uh, on the clouds. They, they, they have no contact with reality, no contact with the, with the society or with their time. Apparently, they, they claim they do. But uh, the internet right. and the, and the, and the uh, problems of society, like the ISIS case for, for being the main enemy now, the, you know, the fashionable enemy of the United States in this moment, is there in the pieces of, of, of Peter Fane. And that's just an example of those things. Okay. And I don't want to continue that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I have a comment about the Jenny Holzer. The, um, my experience of it was very much rooted in the installation. And the experience of the installation moving from the very uh, plainly redacted paintings and coming around to the back end and encountering the pastel formalist paintings. And I think it, my, the, 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 the content is really a question about painting, a question about formalism, and a question not answered well, but presented well. M more on Fend or um, Holzer? Yes, gentlemen. When I go to an exhibition, I don't want to read, I don't want to think, I want to feel and I want to be moved. And neither one of these artists accomplishes that for me. Uh, I, I think a question that comes to my mind about these two artists is, are they artists or are they social, political activists? Uh, what is the role of an artist in this world, in this society? And also, what happens when the topicality of what they're presenting fades over time, then what is the impact and importance of their work? Well, I was thinking one of the uh, historic contexts for Fend and um, Holzer was that they both came out of the uh, collaborative projects and the Fox and um, story art and semiotext. And the, one of the first things that they'd done together was at the manifesto show in which they did a um, piece together with text in 1979. 
and then went on to do the offices of Fenn, Fitzgibbon, Holzer, Naden, Prince, and Winters, which they did text um, proposals to uh, corporations and the UN. So they come out of a long history of uh, working together and uh, text before they sort of split their directions in the 80s. Thank you. Thank you very much, Colin. A any, any further comment on, on Fend or Holzer or the two together? Um, no, I think maybe we're hungry to, to move on to, well, some of us are just hungry, so we should move on. And others are hungry to move on to part two, and some are hungry to move on to part two because of its painterliness. But let's, let's move on. Great, thank you very much. And a good moment to really thank Anna Shukilo properly for the quality of this evening's visual presentation. It occurs to me that actually we could equally have divided the uh, evening into Holzer and John Walker looking at different ways to deal with forms, be it bingo cards or redacted uh, torture notes. And then part two could have been uh, Peter Fend and David Hockney uh, two different ways to think about technology and the environment and ecology. So it's interesting how you know one can mix it up in less obvious, less causal, kind of less generational and mediumistic kind of um, ways. So David Hockney, Hockney like Holzer, being considered for the second time on the review panel. It's a sign, some people think, of dotage when you start repeating yourself. So, as we turn 10, the review panel looks at artists for the second time. So, David Hockney. Who's going to kick me off on David Hockney? What do we, what do we make of... Would Peter Fend learn something from David Hockney about the environment? That's the question I want to ask the panel. Who would like to say to me for the first, who would like to be the first to say to me, I'm going to ignore that question and say something else? I'll take the bait. Yes. Um, I went into the Hockney exhibition and I found myself like really mesmerized by this video where he's driving down this road and everything is fragmented into this um, nine square grid. And, um, I found that really the most compelling work in the exhibition um, because I, f I, s I felt that the technology was used to reflect to me something about the nature of my own vision and my own experience when I'm in, like moving through a landscape. Um, the drawings that were covering the, the entrance part um, raised a question for me about the relationship between um, looking at a landscape as a, as an individual with your very specific um, body of knowledge and the things that your eye grasps um, on one particular day or another, as opposed to the notion of scanning, um, which, you know, to go back to our technology theme, is sort of a more blanket um, recording, um, more de democratic of all the events that are in front of you. Um, and. Also, with the second body of work, the iPad drawings, I found myself really looking at the um, generalization 
of form that was taking place through the iPad drawings. And for me, both of those raised um, critical issues. Right, yeah, absolutely. Can I ask um, Marjorie, I, I know you're, you're bursting with many things to say about Hockney, but can I ask, let's do a, let's do a comparison of Hockney's nine panel moving grid of that road in uh, Yorkshire and Fens um, ocean coming towards us. Uh, is there some, is there, that seems to be between a very, as we say, conceptual and pastoral show as, as Fend and Hockney are, that would seem to be, a, you, could, you could imagine those two pieces in one show with a common theme, couldn't you? I'm going to change the topic, um, I've, as I've learned from my politicians. Um, and they I'm, do it more subtly, with respect. I know. Uh, what, the, what they do is they uh, ignore the question and pretend that they've answered it. So I'm at least being more transparent. I would be so flattered if you pretended. But anyway, okay. go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, There's a, um, a book on Hockney, the title of which is Hockney's Pictures. The key term for Hockney's work is pictures, not paintings. Um, in the history of British illustration, in which Hockney, no matter which way he turns, is embedded, the term depiction, picturing, description that relies on prosthesis, as in the camera, is where I place the show. And that there is nothing in the show, despite the mild fauvist gestures, that change my view that the key term is really picture, not painting. Right. Picture, not painting, sign, not symbol, objective, not Subjective, Ken, would you agree? He doesn't want, he doesn't want to that I do, but after Ken's comes in first. Dichotomies here between picture and painting. Do you, do you find such a dichotomy useful in, in, coming, in making sense and coming to terms with Hockney? I sort of, I was thinking, I, I mean, there's an introduction to the show where he talks about having suffered a mild stroke, uh, he's deaf, he's... How old is he? Eighty something. Oh, seventy-seven. Uh, I thought he was older. So I, I thought there was this. I felt this kind of elegiac uh, feeling about all the roads are uh, in in the prints are going into the forest and sort of disappearing into a burst of color or light, uh, and and the endless road. Uh, so I, I, was re I read it kind of in symbolist terms, um, and it seemed poignant to me in that respect. So I felt, you know, I've always liked Hockney's relationship. I mean, he's such a facile, uh, he's so skilled as, as an illustrator, and, 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 uh, and I initially I breezed through the show and thought, uh, that the larger works were actually paintings. And then, uh, so I was very impressed when I came back and realized they were made on an iPod, iPad. And, you know, I found them kind of beautiful. But I thought, 
these don't feel particularly relevant to me, to me at this point in time, to anything I, I mean, you know, all four, I, I, I mean, I'm, all right, I'm 61 myself and, and probably becoming increasingly irrelevant, but uh, I, I don't feel in these four artists that there's the center of gravity of energy in contemporary art now is, is that's where it's at, that they're, they're, there's a kind of settled uh, occupation of, of paths that started 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, I, I don't, what do you think, Marjorie? Uh, uh, the, the last sentence was, was interesting, that you don't feel the relevance. Um, uh, uh, that can be developed quite interestingly in terms of uh, something I was taught to think with. That is to say, there are some artists who uh, are original and produce <clears throat> paradigms and others produce the definitive versions of those. Um, I don't know that any of the four artists would qualify for either, but what is what the model here is that sometimes the what you can would consider settled could also be a kind of loyalty to a certain set of forms or uh, uh, contents that the artist um, abides by, is dedicated to, whether or not um, he or she is on the radar of uh, the media, certainly. And so, uh, and I'm not saying the shows, I'm not defending any one show relative to that. I'm just offering that model. Um, Bach would, uh, the composer Bach would fall into something, um, the, the second of those models, his sons thought he was so old-fashioned, but it's Bach we remember. Right. I think that's really interesting um, to look at an artist's work in terms of how the original conceit of the work pans out over the entire career. Like, what, what, how does that idea or what they're doing develop over a long period of time? And I, I mean, I think with Hockney, you see that it ends up for me, in a kind of banality there at the end, where there's certainly been really interesting moments, and probably every student's been influenced by his Emperor on the River video in terms of the um, sort of dynamics of looking at different perspectival systems. But, uh, you know, I think we get to the end and we see that show, it's very hard to, I mean, it, to me, it's very hard to critique because of what Ken said at the beginning. You, re you come in and you read the statement and you just feel like you can't really critique this show because... I think there's tons here that we can critique. And I, I, would, I would remind the panel that the, the software that he's using on his iPad is entirely predicated on painting. It is an attempt, it, it gives one the power with one's fingers, so it goes from the digit to the hand and the arm, but one is, uh, one, is use, one is slowing down, so it's kind of a bit more like printmaking. But basically, the technology is, is, all, is all geared around giving you um, access to shapes and colors to then put onto a backlit um, environment in order to, uh, and then, to correspond in any way your imagination or your facility take you to uh, your response to 
that other environment the, the place where you are, the, the landscape you're looking at, so on and so forth. So um, I'd say they're very traditional, um, you know, but paint the whole history of art is, is, is finding new te technologies. I mean, tubes of paint was as big a, 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 and as radical uh, a technological innovation in the 19th century as the iPad is in the 21st. I think, uh, I think that the, the dichotomies that um, Marjorie is, is, is putting forward between pictures and paintings, which is something that I've long been fascinated with, um, are much more instructive than worrying too much about whether they're iPads or whether they're paintings. Yeah, but I think, I think Hockney got led astray by, I mean, he's so easily seduced by new gadgets. Uh, you know, to me, his best work is, is, is the realist period of the 70s when he made those double, those big, large double portraits. Right. I mean, okay. they're, 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 I, I love the way they're painted and there's the sort of psychological tension between the characters and yeah. that whole period. Mr. Is, and Mrs. Clark. Yeah, yeah. Or Henry Gelzeller and his friend, uh, you know, there's, and the, or the picture of the guy looking into the pool. I mean, they're really rich. Pictures. But we can all have our own Hockney moment. I, I love the paintings of the, the very early paintings he was doing in the sort of Dubuffet style with the, those sort of first gay imagery, images and the sort of British pop sort of Typhoo tea things. But what so, I'm saying is that, I mean, sometimes your criteria is, I, for me, is like, look what the artist did at his or her best. And, and it, I don't know if that's fair or not, but that's, I do that. And I think, you know, what if Hockney was still working in that sort of really, very acutely uh, uh, attentive way with regard to vi not just visual experience, but social experience? Yeah, but Ken, what if Hockney at his very worst was still better than Holzer and Walker and Fend? Then we'd be, be, be a strange kind of evaluation system. It'd be like the Olympics saying, the person who came first is going to get the bronze because he could have gone faster. I mean, that, that's, that would be weird, wouldn't it? I mean, not that I'm saying it is a race. But let's get back to the stuff. Let's get back to the uh, Joan. Um, oh, sorry, no, Marjorie. Um, Picture uh, versus, I, 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 I try to map a few other dichotomies onto your dichotomy of picture and painting, um, and then I took it over to Ken. So I t take it back to you. Does the subjectivity, does the subjective versus the objective, does, the, um, um, does that work with picture painting dichotomy as well? Um, uh, picking up on, uh, some, to answer your question, I'll pick up on something Ken said. Um, in addition to uh, Hockney's um, actually avidity for British illustration, I think his gift is something he ignored. I'm not talking about the facility with which he is dazzled. I'm talking about the gift uh, by which in the, uh, in uh, the swimming pool paintings, at least some of them. And the coincidence of the then new technology called acrylic paint, he produced a kind of Shangri-La of affectlessness, of the a California permanent happiness. I think that inflection of a world of innocence will be his contribution. And I keep wondering why didn't he notice this as his particular way 
of bringing the cult of the child, with which he should be familiar through Runga, for instance, and the Pre-Raphaelites in their own morbid pieties, but a kind of innocence within that. Um, you would think he would be more cognizant. I can, don't consider him a cognizant artist for all his technical wherewithal. That's, uh, that's very, very interesting because really, um, the, 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 if he had just continued in a vein that was a success for him and, and with his public, he would have become formulaic, and he's somebody who's got a very restless uh, visual mind and intellectual mind, and that, that restlessness with new ideas is, to my mind, uh, the perfect embodiment of childishness. I mean, it seems to me that actually uh, his use of the iPad, is he's like a kid with a new toy. And that, what could be more childish than a kid with a toy? I so, didn't say childish, but it's not childlike. About being, childlike. It's not really about being childlike, but I think what Marjorie was saying is that in those paintings that, that were childlike, he's giving us a kind of reflection on the social condition of California in a way that allows us to gain a new perspective. And when I see the paintings that are in the pace, there's no, I don't feel that sense of perspective. I don't feel that sense of being engaged in some kind of, any kind of awareness of the social body and allowing us and allowing his own art to be a reflection of that perspective. And I, I feel like that's what I'm missing when I, when I go into the Hockney show. Like he's secluded himself and he's been fascinated by these toys, you know, and he kind of reminds you of the millions of people walking down the street, you know, they're standing in front of somewhere and they're looking for it on their phone. I, uh, more specifically with regard to the show, I, uh, like the charcoal, there's two things. There's charcoal drawings, which are made by hand and drawn not from photographs, but on site, which I thought were okay, just as drawings. Uh, I mean, 77 isn't, isn't the age where you say, oh, that's pretty good for an old guy. That's like, you can still, you know, when you get to be 95, say, you could say, oh, that's pretty good. But they're not that good. It's hard and to hold them up to Matisse's late work. Or, or Titian. I mean, so are you saying... Uh, no, well, I mean, even, you know, that doesn't, not even measuring against the great old masters. They're just not that interesting drawings. They're flat and they're sort of, you know, they're sort of facile. And it, but but, uh, but the, the, the prints, I mean, David, you want to make a case for, for drawing on the iPad as being a form of painting. But I think you could do anything. Anybody could just make marks on that thing, a dog, and you could send it to the printers who print them, and the thing would be beautiful just because the colors and, and the technology itself is, is uh, in inevitably visually dazzling. In the 1950s, a, a monkey named Congo was trained to, by Desmond Morris to, to paint, and uh, if you, and, and but that's and, different. And, I mean, that, and I so, mean, but that was then to, to people who didn't get abstract expressionism. They said, "Oh, this is as good as abstract expressionism." But that really just tells us about the philistinism of those people, not about the that's monkey. That's not about that. So, David, you're you're not getting my point. Oh well, repeat. The it. point is that the if you if you take materials that are inherently beautiful, 
But an iPad's not inherently beautiful. It's kind of banal and ugly most of the time. But I mean, the colors that you're you're. Am I wrong? I don't know. I don't have an iPad. It's very seductive. I get your point, Ken. It's very seductive, and you could put anything there, and it would be very seductive, and you could look at it. But there's something missing. And you get them printed in beautiful inks, and you know, it looks great. It's and and right. So, paint isn't like that. I mean, if a monkey paints a painting, it looks like a monkey made it, or an elephant. But uh, and paint is like like mud paint. You, in order to make paint look beautiful, you have to like do a lot of stuff to it, unless you're unless you already have in place a, an aesthetic that values uh, you know ugliness or certain kind of okay. you know schnabel like. Uh, I, I would uh, actually suggest that the iPad prints are a failure <laughs> because. I want to see them on an iPad. They need to be backlit, and they need to be the scale at which he manipulated them in the first place. So I will be more excited to see those images, as he, as he has actually in the past, presented on iPads. I mean, it seems once you're the price of a Hockney, it's hardly, Pace would hardly be that generous to also throw in an iPad as well on top. So why, why, well, that's sort of, why that's, don't they just give us iPads? That's sort of like with Jeff Wall. I mean, like Jeff Wall's... Nothing yeah. Jeff Wall did is as interesting as the giant transparencies on light boxes. Right. So, uh, but again, that goes to. Ladies and know, gentlemen, it, let's move to let's move to Walker. Can we? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And Ken, as I very rudely interrupted the art critic of the New York Times mid-sentence when he was about to tell us something incredibly insightful about Hockney, tell us something incredibly insightful about John Walker. Oh, wow. Ken, what did you think of John Walker? I think uh, they are cliched at every level. And... and, uh, They are cliched at every level, he says. Yeah. I think he's a bad painter. But uh, not in the good sense of a bad painter. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, from from the from the this notion of his peninsula in Maine uh, abstracted into this in this these generic marks and and that kind of thick crusty paint. I the, on the one hand, you've got this kind of sentimentalist notion of the Maine sea coast. I grew up in Maine. It's a very depressing place to grow up. But, um, and on the other hand, that sentimentalization of paint as paint, like if it's thick and piled on, it, it, it has some substance to it. Uh, I think the colors are awful. And the parts where he makes, he's got the aerial view of the peninsula, and then he makes a horizon line with the sun it's terrible. Um, using the Beano cards, I don't know. That just seems like an affect that seems, you know, isn't, doesn't carry, I don't know. It's, it's a trick that doesn't interest me in the least. Um, we'll get you something else for Christmas. Um, <laughs> Marjorie. Hello. Um, I have a somewhat different take on the 
the show. Um, maybe this, my take is too academic, but what I see in the work <clears throat> is uh, an attempt to keep the flame alive from within a primitivist or vitalist, if you're Nietzsche, tradition of um, expressive use of essential forms. So instead of a point, a line, and a plane, he has a blob, a schmear, and a shape. But we get the lexicon, and that's the a kind of uh, um, elementary formal lexicon within which he positions or tries to extrude or tries to express um, a primitivism. I, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very, uh, um, there is a cliche there, um, which I believe to be his position of essential modernism, uh, to which he adheres and with which he tries to make a painting refreshing that each time. However, I do see it as somewhat derivative, uh, obviously. If one takes a position of the syncretic, <clears throat> of amalgamating um, the formalist vocabulary with an expressive um, touch that, that is locatable in early modernity, whether it is Jack Yates, or Jack Yates plus Hartley plus Milton Avery, uh, one can read the paintings maybe a little too clearly for their genealogy. Uh, as far as the small paintings with the um, um, Bino text, just an asterisk here, he, uh, Walker was beguiled by seeing Bino cards in an attic and he understood that to be um, the underground way of playing bingo. But what I found quite irritating is that Walker's work, which, uh, utilizing that, those Bino cards, uh, was a, really uh, an unconvincing use of um, pasted paper or collage. I found the small works um, unresolved. The larger works were resolved within their own terms. Yes, I, I, um, that's fascinating, thank you. I, I, I think that uh, I, I, all your art historical points of reference are totally taken, but I would then add an, an update, perhaps. Uh, Munk via Jasper Johns, um, and then and the palette of Anselm Kiefer. Uh, but I would say, I would actually make a bit more of a case for them. I would say that uh, he is somebody who was schooled in a reductive modernism, uh, and so therefore the uh, deployment of the signifiers, as you as you say, is is kind of very legible. But he's seeking through the act of painting and seeing, I believe, to try to really access and activate um, a neo romanticism. And uh, I'm not any. I was once a great devotee of neo romanticism. By the time I discovered John Walker, my uh, affection for neo-romanticism was beginning to wane, and that's unlucky for my relationship with John Walker. But I can see, however, um, a considerable degree of um, acumen in these works. There, I think there is a genuine pleasure in both making and seeing, 
um, albeit that the originality is not as substantial as it needs to be in successful romantic painting for me. But I would give it uh, much higher points than Ken. Um, Joan. I think for me, listening to the three of you talk about those paintings, I, I must have heard the word try like five, six, seven times. And for me, that's very indicative of what the, you know, what the problem is there. Um, like I went in, I really wanted to like those paintings. I remember being at the Albee Foundation and living with one of his paintings from the 70s for a month out there and, and really getting, you know, getting a relationship to that painting. And so I had greater expectations maybe. But um, he doesn't, you know, for all the wonderful references that Marjorie elucidated for us, um, I think he just fails to ignite. You know, you, you, maybe you know all that stuff and for all the people who studied all those things and they have all that kind of information in their heads when they go in, there's still the bare fact that you gotta stand in front of the painting and something has to happen for you while you're there in the presence of the work. And, you know, I stayed there for a long time and I just couldn't get anything to happen. So I felt like I was, I was trying way too hard. Let's see if our audience can elucidate Walker for us and defend Hockney for us, uh, because um, I don't think either of those artists uh, got the love that they may feel they deserve from this particular panel. But the panel is now a bigger panel. Let's let's uh, or let's hear more critique. So um, responses to to the two artists we've been looking at. I found both of them to be sort of awkward. Um, I didn't used to think John Walker was awkward, but I do think these paintings are awkward, and I've always thought that David Hockney's work was awkward, and I feel that the iPad drawings were pretty lightweight by um, that they just did not have the feeling of substantialness that at least Walker's paint handling has a feeling of substantiality. Okay, thank you. There's, yes, a hand towards the back. I found it interesting uh, the way the artists were divided in groups of two, and, uh, and then the painters <laughs> being the second group. Um, it's almost as though, in a way, going backwards, but I found in both the Hockney and the Walker show that that kind of work demands more time to appreciate what's happening in them. For example, the Hockney show, after seeing it the first time, I felt uh, the technique was maybe too much of an issue with the way they were fabricated with the iPad. But then, going back a second time, looking at the drawings first in the front room, the chart, which I found beautiful, those charcoal drawings I thought were gorgeous, and then walking into the back room with the screen first as you're entering the space and, and moving into that space, and then seeing what he did with the iPad and how beautiful those works are. If you get a little distance from them and you don't pay as much attention about how they're fabricated, and you actually look at the reflection, the light, the depth of color, they're gorgeous. But it took me, I will admit, a second visit 
to get past the technical element in the work and actually see the work for the beauty that was there. That's one. Now, Walker is a whole nother thing. I've known the work for many years, so it's hard for me to be objective about where that work is now in relation to all the other work that he was doing in the past. And just as the panel referred to Hockney's pool painting as kind of this height of his, of his accomplishment, I also think with a painter like Walker, you have to see the work in the context of the whole career in a way if you want to really see what he's coming out of and where this imagery has evolved from. So I, I think it's hard to judge a show by either of those two artists uh, solely by or, or singularly by, by looking at what they've accomplished in the past as though this, this is somewhat of a downturn uh, in both cases that uh, I, I think I give them credit for moving on with their work. The not, I mean, you're mentioning Hockney's beautiful drawings back early in his career. Yes, I agree, those are gorgeous. The drawings are brilliant and, and the paintings at that time. But he moved on. And uh, I have to say that Walker has as well, and I, I admire them for that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Another comment, uh, yes. I just wanted to say that I found it interesting. Um, we didn't talk about the Hockney works at all as prints, but I just saw them as another form of printmaking. Um, yeah, not drawings or paintings. Okay, thank you. Uh, small uh, art historical remark, uh, David Hockney, uh, was, in fact, a, a major influence uh, on me. I'm Peter Fend, and it was very, very uh, on point, and I had never recognized that until you raised that point today, that Hockney's uh, pool paintings had a huge impact on my ideas about art. Whose ideas? I'm Peter Fend. You're Peter Fend? He uh, impacted He me. had an impact on you. How yeah. extraordinary. Uh, could you elaborate? Or maybe we should invite you back another evening to elaborate. But could you elaborate? Um, I mean, do, uh, do, do you possibly, feel yeah? Because uh, the painting on the cover of the um, book about Los Angeles, the four ecologies of, four ecologies of Los Angeles, uh, had a major impact on me, and actually on what I began to do in the 70s, uh, in terms of how do I say direct bang. Well, let's, uh, you know, we've arrived at the horse's mouth, so to speak. I, I would like to make an announcement, however, as we got, um, uh, let me, as you're there and you're sitting and you're waiting. Um, uh, we have the lineup for the November panel. All the details will be at artcritical.com. Sarah Douglas, Edward M. Epstein, and Lance Esplund uh, join me on November the 21st to discuss Marina Abramovich at Sean Kelly. Tommy Hartung at On Stellar Rays, Ragnar Kjartansson's um, six-hour video, and uh, Luring Augustin Bushwick. You've always wanted to spend a whole day in Bushwick, I know. And Ursula von Reidingsvard's um, latest work at Gallery Le Long. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. See you.